we began on Monday night looking at the theme, the just shall live by faith. Uh, the first time that phrase is found in the Word of God is in Habakkuk chapter number 2, verse 4. Uh, and then it's found three times in the New Testament. It's found in Romans chapter number 1, Galatians chapter number 3, and Hebrews chapter number 10. And uh, we began just walking our way through those passages and looking at each of those instances. We talked about Habakkuk and his crisis of faith that he was experiencing and how that in Habakkuk's instance, that phrase serves and Habakkuk's experience serves as presenting almost in germ form each of the theological truths that are emphasized in the later New Testament passages. Which that, of course, is not surprising. You know, one of the golden rules of studying the Word of God is what theologians and commentators often call the law of first mention. First time something's mentioned in the Bible, it sets a precedent and establishes certain principles and ideals that unless they are changed due to some dispensational shift or direct revelation that something has changed in the Word of God, but barring that, they hold those attributes all the way through the Word of God. A simple example of that, of course, is the first time uh, that blood is uh, shed, as far as animal blood is shed in the Word of God, uh, is when the uh, coats of skin are made for, for Adam and Eve. And what do they do? Well, they cover their sin and they allow them entrance into God and so on and so forth. And so you can just imagine how that then informs the shedding of blood all the way through Scripture. Well, in the same way, the first time that the phrase the just shall live by faith is found, Habakkuk's having a crisis of faith. He doesn't understand some things and he is being called on and, and to a deeper walk of faith. And so we looked at how that passage in many ways is representative of the other three New Testament passages in different ways. So we talked about the principle of faith. Last night we talked about Paul's usage of that phrase in Romans chapter number 1. We actually walked through the first four chapters of the book of Romans and we looked at the pardon of faith. In other words, that faith is the means for a person coming unto God. That's how God has designed it and ordered it and what God desires. Uh, tomorrow night, with the Lord's help, we'll look at uh, Hebrews chapter number 10. We'll, we'll touch on chapter 10. I'll be honest. We'll, we'll touch on chapter 10. Then we'll move into chapter 11 because that's what really expounds on that phrase. Uh, and we'll look at the power of faith and, and what faith can do and what men can do when they will put their faith in God. Uh, but tonight I want us to look at Galatians chapter number 3. And I want us to look at the idea of practice of faith. And I want us to understand what's going on at the church of Galatia. Uh, and why Paul writes what he writes and, and, you know, what God is saying to this local church. So let's begin Galatians chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse number 7. We'll read down to verse number 11 and then we'll pray. Paul says, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In these shall all nations be blessed. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the word of God. Use it in our hearts and minds tonight. Teach us the truth of Scripture and help us to be obedient to it. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So Paul's writing this uh, little church in Asia Minor, the church at Galatia, and they're a church with a problem. You know, it's a comfort to me as a pastor to know that most of the churches that Paul wrote to had problems because every church has problems. They all have obstacles. They all have things that they're trying to overcome and, and uh, areas that God is working on them in. 
And uh, that's no different in uh, the first century than it is today. This church had a problem. Uh, Paul has made a bold statement, theologically speaking, in Galatians chapter 3. But before we ever get there, it's important to first understand the problem that existed at the church at Galatia. Turn back with me to chapter number 1. And let me make a few comments about the problem at Galatia. Now, we're not going to touch on every verse. Time won't permit us to do so. But I do want us to pick up just a few key points to help frame what Paul is dealing with. In Galatians chapter 1, verse number 6, he writes to this church and he says this, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. In these verses, we see Paul's angst over the problem that existed at the church of Galatia. You know, there's probably no more raw and visceral and intimate appalling epistle than the book of Galatians. He later on will describe, he'll say in chapter number 6, see how large a letter I've written unto you with my own hand. And he's not talking about the volume of the letter, but he's talking about the size of the characters that was used in writing it. Paul likely had an eye malady. That seems to be the case. And he talks about this a little bit later on in Galatians about uh, how that some of them would have plucked out their own eyes and given to him if they could. And there's all these hints in Scripture. Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh that that buffets him. And, and, you know, most people agree that probably he had some some problem with his his eyesight. There's another uh, portion in the book of Acts whenever uh, the uh, high priest smites him and and uh, he he curses the high priest. He pronounces a curse upon the high priest there in the book of Acts because he smites Paul. And uh, the high priest says, you know, do you curse the high priest thus? And he said, I would that thou weren't the high priest. I wish not that thou were. In other words, he said, I, I didn't know who it was that I cursed because I couldn't see who smote me. So Paul seems to have an eye malady uh, all throughout his, his ministry. And when he talks about how large letters, he's describing the fact that rather than using uh, someone, a penman, to dictate the letter to, that he had written down the letter of Galatians himself. That he was so disturbed when he heard what was going on in this church, he didn't wait for someone to come and to take the letter down as he dictated it to them, but rather he immediately grabbed pen and paper and pressed and, and, and disturbed by their news and, and, and no doubt inspired and driven by the, the, the Spirit of God, he pinned down these words. And so Paul is deeply disturbed by this problem that he's heard about. And we'll talk about the details of it here in a moment, but I just want you to notice the terms under which Paul describes it. He says that the church at Galatia was being led away by a false gospel. Now, we know that because the way he describes it. Verse number 6, he says it is another gospel. And then he says this, which is not another. Now, what does he mean? Is he is he schizophrenic in his view? No. What he's saying is this. There is no other gospel. And what they're saying to you certainly has semblances of the true gospel, but they are telling you it is the true gospel, but it is not. It is a perverted gospel. And that's what he says. There be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. In the next verse, he will he will reinforce that same thing. He'll say again, let him be accursed. So Paul is deeply disturbed 
that a false gospel is being spread at the church of Galatia. He doesn't call it a misunderstanding. He doesn't call it a diversity of viewpoints. He said it is a perverted gospel. It is a false gospel. It is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we see his angst over the problem. Then in verse 11, he begins to talk about his authority concerning the problem. Paul wants them to understand that he has divine authority to address this matter because of what God has done in his life. He says in verse 11, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, (coughs) excuse me, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James the Lord's brother. Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God I lie not. Afterwards I came into the regions of Syria and Cilicia and was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preached the faith which he once destroyed, and they glorified God in me. Now, the question has to be asked, why does Paul give us this lengthy description of his credentials, of his salvation testimony, and of how God had sort of cultivated his understanding of the gospel? Why does he tell us that? Well, here in a moment, he's going to discuss a group of people that have infiltrated the church at Galatia and have started preaching this false gospel. Uh, these people, it is strongly implied in this passage, were likely from Jerusalem. Uh, we call them Judaizers. But certainly there were people that were thinking to, to mingle the worship of Old Testament Judaism in with New Testament Christianity. And he wants them to understand that it is not him that is preaching the new thing. It is they that are preaching something new. The reason he goes through this big lengthy description is to say, look, I'm not peddling to you some man's perspective. I'm telling you what God did in my heart, in my life, and I'm telling you what God revealed to me. And beyond that, he's saying, look, after this happened, I went to Jerusalem, I conferred with Peter, I conferred with James, I spoke with them, and we left on good terms. We left being in total, complete agreement. One of the things that was a common slander against Paul during his ministry is that he was a rogue agent, that he had departed from from biblical truth. And, uh, you know, uh, over and over again, he's accused of this in the book of Acts, that he's seeking to tear down Moses and preach against Moses and preach some new thing concerning the resurrection. And he wants them to understand that he's not some rogue agent operating outside of biblical authority, but that in fact he had spoken to Peter, one of the Lord's disciples, to James, the Lord's brother, and that whenever they left there, they were on good terms, that his gospel has been certified as being authentic and being true and having veracity and authenticity. He says, you notice in verse 22, he says, I was unknown by face unto the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they had heard only that he which persecuted us in times past now preached the faith which he once destroyed, and they glorified God in me. Why does he say that? Well, because some of these people 
that were infiltrating the church at Galatia and were leading them astray had come from some of those churches in Judea. And he's saying, listen, they tell you that I'm some wild man that's departed and has gone out on a limb, but their churches used to rejoice in what God was doing in my preaching. In other words, he is establishing that he is standing four square within the parameters of biblical authority. Now again, why does all this matter? Well, I want you to notice in chapter 2 his assessment of the problem at Galatia. And he discloses this problem. Now, I want to remind you of something. The church at Galatia knew the problem at Galatia before Paul talked about the problem at Galatia. He's writing to them because they have written to him with a problem. There's a discord, there's conflict in their church, and they've written to him that he might give them some advice and some counsel about how to handle this. And so Paul does not necessarily accept implicitly through the teaching that he gives throughout the book of Galatians. He doesn't call names at the church at Galatia. He doesn't say, well, this guy or that guy. Instead, he's writing to people that it's assumed are already aware of the problem. But he does, in chapter number 2, reveal two prior instances he had experienced of this same problem that had cropped up before. You know, there's no new thing under the sun. The things that churches struggle with today are the things they struggle with back then. And he wants them to understand that the things they are dealing with, he is not unfamiliar concerning. So look at his assessment of the problem in chapter number two. He says in verse number one. Now, remember, he's been talking about his history, how he got saved, how God brought him away into the desert place, conferred not with flesh and blood. God revealed the gospel unto him and taught him the truth of the gospel. And then he says this in verse one. Then 14 years after. I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also. And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. Now, I want you to notice verse number three. It's key to understanding. He says, but neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that because of false brethren unawares brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we gave place by subjection, no, not for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Uh, we'll, we'll pause. We're going to pick back up our reading here in a moment. But I want to tell you what his assessment of the issue at Galatia is, because he's ran into this before. The people that had infiltrated the church at Galatia were the same crowd that had infiltrated his fellowship in Jerusalem, preaching the same thing that they had preached then. And that was that a person had to be circumcised to be saved. Uh, Circumcision, of course, being an Old Testament rite or ritual, a uh, sign and symbol of the covenant relationship that God had with Israel and deeply connected with the cultural and national identity of Israel as a people. We could say it this way that they were claiming that a person had to proselyte to Judaism in order to be saved. Often in the Old Testament, whenever people proselyted into the house of Israel, that was one of the first things that they did. I don't know if you remember, but in the Old Testament, when uh, and all the names will escape me, uh, I know that they will, but when one of the sons of, of Jacob, I believe it was, uh, it, it was uh, Judah maybe, uh, one of Jacob's daughters was uh, taken by a Gentile 
uh, young man, a prince, a Gentile prince, and he went in, lay with her, defiled her. And uh, whenever that happened, uh, Jacob met with the father and said, what are we going to do? How are we going to discuss this? And uh, the young man said he wanted to marry this uh, daughter of Jacob. And so Jacob, to keep the peace, said, well, let's, let's broker some kind of relationship, some marriage between the two of you. The Bible describes how that the sons of Jacob, I'm wanting to say it was Judah and Levi, but I might have that wrong. Don't quote me on that. Uh, they went and brokered this deal and they told this king and this prince that the only way they'd agree to it is if all the men in that community were circumcised and that they would sort of join fellowship one with another and that, uh, you know, their daughters could marry their sons and their livestock would be one and the same. And uh, so the men go through that process. They're all circumcised. And then the sons of Jacob go and fall on them whenever they're uh, healing up and sore uh, from that procedure and kill every one of them. Amen. And uh, so uh, what was that a symbol of circumcision for these Gentiles? Well, to them proselyting into the house of Israel, them subjugating themselves to Israel's form of worship. And so what these were preaching at Jerusalem was not just uh, the performance of a medical procedure or a physical procedure. What they were saying is unless a person is willing to proselyte into Judaism, they can have no part in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they brought Titus with them, who was a Greek. And Paul says, you know, we refuse to allow them to circumcise Titus, even though they wanted to. Now, somebody might say, well, preacher, later on, Paul, of course, had Timothy circumcised whenever they were going to go under the Jews. And that's very true. But I want to remind you that Timothy was half Jewish. And so for Timothy, this wasn't necessarily a betrayal of of who he was, and and for Titus it would have been complete and utter rank hypocrisy, and they wanted him essentially to proselyte to Judaism to get to the cross of Calvary. And Paul says, we didn't give him space, we didn't give him place by subjection, no, not for an hour. He says in verse 6, but of these who seem to be somewhat, not the way he says this, whatsoever they were, maketh no matter to me, God accepteth no man's person. He says, whoever these bigwigs were, they weren't big to me, I don't care who you are, But he says, for they who seem to be somewhat in conference added nothing to me. In other words, they seem to be really important in that crowd, but they didn't help me any and they didn't tell me anything new. He says, but contrary wise, when they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto me as the gospel of the circumcision was unto Peter. In other words, that Paul was sent to the Gentiles, whereas Peter was sent to the Jews. For he that wrought effectually in Peter, the apostle to the apostleship of the circumcision, the same was mighty in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they unto the circumcision. Now verse 10 is key. Only they would that we should remember the poor, the same which I also was forward to do. Now, why is verse 10 key? Because Paul's saying they put no requirements upon us. They didn't send us to go circumcise Gentiles. They didn't send us to go proselyte Gentiles into Judaism. They sent us to preach the gospel. And the only thing they asked of us is that we should remember the poor. As far as what that means, that could imply giving alms or giving uh, some sort of gift, sending back to the church at Jerusalem. And, of course, that was something Paul uh, did later on in his ministry. He's pointing to the fact that this crowd that is preaching 
that a person has to be circumcised to be saved, that they have to proselyte to Judaism to get to Calvary. He's saying they have no grounds to stand upon. This thing has already been litigated. It doesn't need to be re-litigated. He says, I stood in Jerusalem with Peter, James, and John. I got their certification, their seal upon my ministry. They're saying that I'm preaching something contrary to what James is preaching. He's saying, I stood and looked James in the eyeball and know that that is not what James would have preached. So the problem, number one, was circumcision as a means for salvation. Now, there's a second problem that was prevalent at the church at Galatia at this time, an error that was being spread about. And Paul tells another story to sort of illustrate where uh, where he stands on this. In verse 11, he says, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that, So, in other words, before he had come to Antioch, before that, certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them that were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. But when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, I said unto Peter before them all, If thou, being a Jew, livest after the manner of Gentiles, and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews? So, again, context is king when you study your Bible. Remember that uh, the social setting in which Paul describes this is the dinner table. He says that before this crowd came from James, from Jerusalem, and visited at Antioch, that Peter would sit down and eat with the Gentiles, meaning he'd eat what the Gentiles ate, meaning he'd have fellowship with them, meaning that he would not consider himself separate or apart or consider them unclean or of lesser status in any way, shape, fashion, and form. But whenever these people came from James, uh, these religious leaders, it seemed to be, all of a sudden, Peter's attitude towards the Gentiles changed. Now, all of a sudden, he ain't taking his lunch tray over to their table. Now all of a sudden he's not, all of a sudden his food got real kosher when they showed up. All of a sudden everything changed. He says in so much that even Barnabas, now why is it that Paul would say that? Well, because Barnabas, and I'm sure he loved Peter, I'm sure they had a fellowship, but he wasn't even Peter's friend, he was Paul's friend. And Paul's saying it was so bad that even my buddy Barnabas was behaving the same way. When this group wasn't there, it wasn't important to behave or live or act as a Jew. But then when they showed up, all of a sudden it became important not just for Peter to behave as a Jew, but he began to mistreat the Gentiles because they didn't live as the Jews do, didn't observe their dietary laws, didn't observe their various uh, statutes concerning washing and cleansing. And this is what he said to him. He said, if thou being a Jew livest after the manner of the Gentiles, he's saying, if it's good enough for you as a Jew to not live like a Jew, why then should Gentiles have to live like Jews? We could say it this way. That the first problem was circumcision as a means for salvation. The second problem, and I'm going to use this word and I'll explain it, is service as a metric for sanctification. In other words, service unto Old Testament Judaism. The keeping of Old Testament laws as a metric for a person's Christianity or death or development or standard and consecration before the Lord. Now again... Why would Paul discuss these details? Because he wants them to know where he stands on these matters. He also wants them to know that this is no new theological controversy. We could summarize it in this simple phrase. The problem at the church of Galatia that Paul's addressing 
is two errors. One is that a person had to be circumcised to be saved. In other words, they had to be proselyted into Judaism to get to Calvary. The second is that the keeping of the law made a person a better Christian. That it was a metric. That you could look at a person in the way that they observed or did not observe the Old Testament law and determine by them what their degree of consecration or commitment to the Lord was. Paul, by the way, it's important to note, he's not necessarily advocating for Jews to have to abandon their cultural identity. We don't find him begrudging them for whatever things culturally may be present in their life, but he is saying this, that that is not the metric that God looks at when he determines a person's sanctity and a person's consecration and a person's devotion to him. He's saying you're trying to get them to behave as Jews, but as we'll see here in a few moments, the point of the cross of Calvary is that the middle wall of partition was torn down and that whatever ethnic, cultural, national identity existed before in regards to a man's relationship with God is of no bearing any longer. And we'll see, Paul even uh, sort of implies that uh, it did not have as big a bearing as even they would have thought even in the Old Testament. So, the problem has been laid forth. What is Paul going to say about it? Now, I want to remind you what we're dealing with tonight, because we've maybe moved a little far afield from our original uh, you know, proclamation of the title. We're dealing with the practice of faith. Or that faith is the, is the force of principle, is, is, is the force of ideal that governs and guides and underpins the behavior and life of the believers. Uh, there are a great many people whose perspective about Bible Christianity is that faith only serves to get us to God. And that as soon as that's done, we graduate from faith And then it becomes all about our standards, it becomes all about our devotion, it becomes all about our service, it becomes all about our effort, it becomes all about our tithing. And Paul's going to reveal to us that actually in our life, faith, we never graduate from the principle of faith. We never get to a place where where we operate in our own energies in a way that's pleasing to God. And to set this against the backdrop of, of what was going on at the Church of Galatia is brilliant. Because it really sets forth and deals in nuance with with what I think is really one of the, the key struggles that Christians have today. Here's one of the reasons people struggle with it. It's right to do right. Okay? It's right to do right. And sometimes I think people have this notion that parsing people's motives or people's expectations of it is nitpicking. But Paul's going to reveal that in fact, if our motives are not correct, And if our perspective on what we're doing is not correct, it can actually lead to a shipwreck of faith that can do one of two things. It can either completely frustrate the work of the grace of God in our lives, or it can lead us to a place of despair and despondency that causes us to either slip into rank hypocrisy or to utter debauchery. It's not a small thing to stop and check your motives. We all ought to be consistently stopping and asking ourselves, am I operating in faith in my life day by day? So Paul's dealt with the problem at Galatia. And he's going to sort of seamlessly, and I don't know how much of this he said to Peter and how much of it he's saying exclusively to us in verse 15, because, I mean, it it almost sounds like his rant to Peter becomes the rest of the book of Galatians. I don't know, maybe Peter had to sit there and, you know, for an hour while Paul just gave it to him. I don't know. But uh, he says in verse number 15, he's going to begin discussing the principle of liberty in the life of the believer. And we'll define what we mean by that here in a moment. He says in verse 15, we who are Jews by nature. So in other words, ethnic, cultural, physical, biological, national Jews. We who are Jews by nature 
and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. What do we mean by the term liberty? I think most people in modern loose Christianity, when they say liberty, what they really mean is license. License being the idea of I have a a blank check to live any way I want and I dare you to say something about it. That's never been what God has called His people to. It has never been that God has called us to loose living, low standards, and to license and debauchery. Rather, the biblical term is liberty. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. I don't know if you realize this, but the Old Testament law was a yoke of bondage. That's how he describes it later on in Galatians. It was not something that advanced man's spirituality. It was something that impeded man's spirituality. It was not a springboard to transcend an understanding of the person of God. Now, of course, in the Old Testament, the law contained many beautiful pictures of who God was. But those were types and shadows and could never give the full picture of of who God was. Now, you might say, well, preacher, but that's all they had. Yes, but it's not all we have. And liberty could be characterized not as freedom from from biblical truth, not as, as freedom from responsibility to God, but rather as freedom from the curse and yoke that the Old Testament law was. God didn't give you liberty so that you could crawl on the ground. He gave you liberty so you could mount up with wings as eagles. As one person said it, he didn't... Uh, save us uh, from the law. He didn't, he didn't do it so we could get out from under the law, but so that we could transcend above the law. Uh, Christ would say this, that except your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees, you shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, the liberty we're describing is not, well, I can live any old way I want. God didn't save us to that. We, we talk all the time in Sunday school about it. Uh, there's a theological term for it, antinomianism. As a big $10 word, but what it basically means is that grace is license. That, that I can say, well, I can live any way I want because grace. That that allows me to do what I want in my life. The way we say it in Sunday school is antinomianism is grace makes you gross. But uh, grace doesn't make you gross. Grace makes you godly. It doesn't cause you to live to lower standards. So Paul is dealing with the liberty we have in Jesus Christ. And he's going to give three biblical truths that sort of establish this ideal. The first is found in the text that we just read. And we could summarize it in this way. Paul wants to remind the church at Galatia that we as believers, saved individuals, and by the way, he is speaking collectively of himself and of others, certainly a portion at Galatia, if not the majority, who are Jews by nature. Ethnic Jews had been raised under the law. It was their culture. It was their heritage. And he wants to point that even they as Jews are dead to the law. Notice how he says it in verse 16. 
We who are Jews, not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ. In other words, he looks at those that would say they are saved Jews. And he would say, you say that you are saved, and yet you want to put yourself under the yoke of the law. Didn't you come to Calvary because you recognized that the law did not convert you, it condemned you? You came to Jesus Christ because you recognized the law did not have the ability to justify you. And that's why you confessed yourself a sinner and came to Jesus Christ. He's saying, if you thought the law could save you, why did you not just recommit yourself deeper to the law? In other words, he's invoking their own salvation testimony and pointing to the fact that the law lacked the capacity to justify them before God. He says it in no uncertain terms at the end of verse 16. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But I think what a lot of people misunderstand is the next few verses. He says, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ. In other words, we believed on Christ to save us and, and we believe we are justified by Christ in the eyes of God. If while we do that, we ourselves are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin, God forbid. Now, it's important to understand the sense in which Paul means this. We are all sinners. If you're here and you're saved tonight, you still sin. You still do things wrong. I still do things wrong. We all do. But what he's talking about is God's perspective or opinion or caricaturization of who we are. And he's saying this. The law and the Lord say two different things about who we are today. He's saying when we were lost, they agreed. They said condemned. But recognizing the law lacked the ability to save us, we came to Jesus Christ, accepted His forgiveness. We now stand in His grace. But the law looks at our life and the law still says condemned. The law looks at our life and still says unrighteous. The Lord has proclaimed us to be justified. He's saying that has put us in a crisis or a crossroads, a place of decision where we must decide which is of preeminence in our life. That's why he says in verse 18, if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. He's not saying that by building them again, I've transgressed, although I think that would be true likewise. He's saying if I go back and try to build my righteousness through the building blocks of obedience to the Old Testament law, I don't come out the other end of that looking justified. I come out the other end of that in condemnation. And he's saying essentially this, the law's already made up its mind about me. It's already passed judgment. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. It has already heard the case of Paul or of Saul of Tarsus. And I would say this, though I'm a Gentile, uh, my, I've never been bound under the law. Certainly, if I was to judge my life under the scrutiny of Old Testament commandment, the case would have already been heard for Toby Weber. And what would it have said? It would have said dead. Death sentence. I'm a transgressor. I'm a sinner. And so what happened? Well, he says in verse 19, For I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. He's saying the law pronounced me dead. And he goes on to, I'll just read it because no, nobody says it better than the Holy Ghost. He says in verse 20, I am crucified with Christ. So in other words, the law sentenced me to death. When did I die? I died in the person of Christ on the cross of Calvary. But now I'm still living, Paul says, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Who's the I he's speaking of when he says, yet not I? Well, he's talking about Saul of Tarsus. He's talking about that Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day. He's talking about that that Pharisee. He's talking about that man who had advanced himself in the Jews' religion. He's saying, that man's dead. 
But here I stand and live and breathe. So who is it that's alive? Well, who was it that got up from the dead? It was Jesus Christ. He says, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, he's saying the law has already adjudicated my case, condemned me to death, and I've died on the cross of Calvary in the person of Jesus Christ. And now I am resurrected in new life. And the law has no more jurisdiction over me. I am dead to it. It cannot bring up those charges again. And the life which I now live now, it's not my life, but it's Christ living in me. He says an interesting thing in verse 21. He says, I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Here's what the Judaizers would have said. They would have looked at him and they would have said, oh, you're taking that all out of context, Paul. Oh, but what about this, Paul? Oh, but you don't understand, Paul. Oh, but you, you, you've left the nuance, Paul. And Paul would say, look, I'm not arguing with you. He said, I, it's not the grace of God I'm frustrating you. It's you I'm frustrating. He said, let's just make this real simple. If righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. It's completely incompatible to suggest that our salvation could rest in the keeping of the law. And by the way, that's not just true of the Jews' law. It's, it's true of the Gentiles' law of conscience, too. That through my good works and through my effort, I could get to heaven. It's completely disconsonant to claim that and then look to the cross of Calvary and say, but there is my hope and there is my help and there is my salvation. If the law could get us there, there was no point in Christ dying. But he did die. Why did he die? He died because he died in our place. Therefore, we are dead to the law. Look with me in chapter 3. It's going to give us another foundational truth, a, a pillar It's going to help us understand why it is that we must walk by faith. Why that faith is not just the operative principle in a man coming to God, but even after salvation remains the operative principle in a person's life. He says in verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you. Pause. Let's stop there. What does he mean by that? What he means is this, you used to be convinced that Christ was enough. You used to be convinced that that was your hope. You used to know these things were true. Again, Paul keeps driving this nail of saying, I've not changed. I remember whenever I, I don't have time for a story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Whenever I came to, to Wall Ridge, um, the Wall Ridge was a part of a group called the BMA, the Baptist Missionary Association. I won't go through all the details of what that was. It's was, it was sort of a, a pseudo-denominational thing, but... I, you know, I, I felt deeply in my heart that I, I shouldn't pastor a church that's not independent, that we didn't need to be a part of anything other than uh, the body of Christ. And uh, so I, I, I decided that I wouldn't take the church unless they were willing to leave that. But I didn't want to make that decision without doing some due diligence. So I actually called the director of that organization, talked to him on the phone, and told him some of the problems that I had with where their organization was and and everything, and they had all kinds of just everything was loose. Nobody believed anything. There was all kinds of problems. But I made the comment to him. I never forgot this because I remember hearing Harold Sotler say this years ago about the Southern Baptists. He said this. He said, we're preaching the same Bible we've always preached. We're singing the same songs we've always sing. We're, we've got the same ministries we've always had, and we're holding the same line we've always held. It's not us that's moved. It's you that's moved. It's not us that's changed. It's you that's changed. I made that comment to uh, Dr. John David Smith, the director of the BMA, and I, you know he knew I was gone the second I guess he picked up the phone, but that always stuck with me. I've not moved. You've moved. And what Paul's saying over and over again in Galatians is, I've not moved, they've moved. 
I'm where I've always been. I'm doing what I've always done. And he's saying there was a time, he's saying it's not me that's changed. You have changed. You used to be convinced of these things. And he's going to begin to ask him a series of questions. But let me give you this heading for this portion. Three principles of why it's by faith in our life going forward. One, because we're dead to the law. But number two, because we are directed by the Spirit of God. He says in verse 2, This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He's saying all that you've suffered, all the people that turned their back on you when you turned away from Judaism to the cross of Calvary, why'd you do that if it didn't matter, if, if there was no point in it? He says, He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. In other words, he's pointing to the fact that even in their own lives, it has been apparent that they are, they are, uh, they are, mm, I'm trying to think of a good word for this. I don't want to say activated, but I guess I'll say it. Activated by a different principle than, than Old Testament worship. That had, had Judaism been enough, they would have never departed from it. That when they were born again, it wasn't because they were culturally smitten by a lack of adherence to the law, but it's because they found bankruptcy in that system and the Spirit of God stirred their heart and drive them and pushed them to something different. And he's saying, you began in the Spirit of God. Are you now made perfect by the flesh? In other words, we got saved not because we were really good, but because we were really bad. Not because we were really strong, but because we were really weak. We got saved not through boasting of our own ability, but through confessing our own inability. And he's saying, if you began that way, why would you think then all of a sudden God would completely change the principle under which your relation with, relationship with Him operates, and now He would look at you and say, okay, let's make you an awesome you and let's boast in who you are. He says, no, no, of course not. Instead, we started with the Spirit of God. We continue with the Spirit of God. We started through confessing our own weakness. We continue through confessing our own weakness. We started by trusting the Lord. We continue by trusting the Lord. And then he brings up an Old Testament name that's very important in this conversation. He says, even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Again, the theme Paul's driving at, this ain't no new thing. We talked about it at length last night, and so I won't belabor it. Uh, but Paul has established unequivocally that Abraham was not saved by works, but by faith. Uh, that whenever God saved Abraham, it wasn't, not only was, was it prior to the law being given, it was prior to circumcision being given. Why did God do it? So that he might be the father of all who believe, both Jew and Gentile. To establish a precedent that the means of a man coming to God is not through any of these uh, rituals of, of worship or ceremony, or of cultural identity, uh, but rather through simple faith in the promises of God. So he's pointed to this second principle. We're directed by the Spirit. I've got to hasten. I want, I want to show you a third one. Look at verse number 7. He says this, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. Now, I'll pause there and say this, and I'm careful how I say this, figurative is probably not the right word. 
I would say this, that I don't believe necessarily that God looked at Abraham and said, one day Jesus Christ is going to come and he'll be the Son of God and he'll die on the cross of Calvary in the place of every sinner and he'll be buried, raised again the third day by the power of God and repenting of your sins and believing on him for salvation, you can be born again. I don't think God said that to Abraham. I do think there is something, and we're going to use the word figurative, it's probably not the best word, but something figurative being suggested here when it says preach before the gospel unto Abraham. Why do I believe that? Well, because it tells us what that was when God preached the gospel to him. This is what God said, in these shall all nations be blessed. But now, the important thing about this verse is not necessarily whether Abraham understood the nuance of everything that the gospel would be and would mean, but rather that it was unto Abraham prior to the giving of the law and that it was not in any way, shape, fashion, or form connected with the giving of the law or the keeping of the law, but rather it was when in Genesis 15, uh, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. Paul's wanting to point to the fact that it was not through the law. The law didn't even exist. He'll go on to talk about that at length in chapter 4 about the the covenant that was given 450 years later cannot disannul the promise. And I encourage you to study that in your own time. But he's just wanting to drive home that it's always been by faith. He says in verse 9, So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident. For the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, you can read it in your own time in Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23, but Paul here quotes it, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree that the blessing of Abraham Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Why is it that, that we do not look to the law as the operative principle in the life of the believer, but rather faith as the metric of our devotion to God? Well, because we're dead to the law, because we're directed by the Spirit, birthed by the Spirit of God into the family of God, but then number three, because we are delivered from the curse of the law. Uh, you know, Paul will go on to describe how that the Old Testament worship was sort of the schoolhouse of Revelation. Uh, I don't know about you, but I, when I was young, I used to like them books that had pop-up things in them. Any of you ever have those? I've still got a few on my shelf when I'm feeling down. I'll just read pop-up books. Uh, and, you know, when you're little, you want books that have lots of pictures and lots of colors and lots of illustrations to communicate things. But as you get older, I hope it's true that we graduate from those things. And just pure knowledge given to us is enough to illuminate and uh, to interest our minds. Well, Old Testament worship was sort of the pop-up book version of worship. It's all these types and pictures. And some commentators have called it the preschool of Revelation, in which God had to paint vivid pictures through the performance of certain rites and of rituals. We often think of, of there being some nobility in that. And certainly there's a beauty in it. But the nobility is not in that, but rather in the clear, vivid, explicit revelation of God through the person of Jesus Christ. And one of the things God was doing in the Old Testament, as beautiful as the revelation of God was in the Old Testament, it always maintained the same declaration or proclamation upon man's position and station, that man was cursed. Here's a set of rules. If you obey them, there's a blessing. If you disobey them, there's a curse. 
Man always found himself on the cursed side of that relationship. But it was not God's desire that mankind live under condemnation, but under salvation. Not under the curse, but under the blessing. And part of the reason that Christ died on the cross of Calvary was that we might not live a life beaten down, downtrodden under the pronunciation of curse upon our life day in and day out, but rather that we might live in the blessedness of the new life we have in Jesus Christ. So in other words, Paul has given us these three principles, and I'm running out of time. We're just going to run through the last portion. All right, you get your, get your tennis shoes on. We're going to run through the last portion of it. But he's given us these three principles of liberty, why we have liberty in Christ Jesus. So what does that mean for us? And I'm just going to give them to you machine gun style. The third point is this, the practice of faith. I'm going to skip over chapter 4, but please don't you skip over it. You read it in your own time and study it. It's very important for time's sake. We're not going to read all of it. But I want you to notice the conclusion that Paul comes to in verse number 1 of chapter 5. Paul says this, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. Be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Is he saying that Christ is of no profit to a Jewish individual? No. He's saying that if you're not circumcised, but you get circumcised. Or we could say it this way, if you're not Jewish, but you proselyte to Judaism as an effort or endeavor To please God, you have forfeited what the purpose of Calvary was all about in the first place. He says, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised, that is looking for their salvation through that effort, that he is a debtor to do the whole law. If you did that, (laughs) Christ has become of no effect to you. You have no part in Calvary. It means nothing to you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Campbellites want you to believe that means losing your salvation. The clear teaching of Scripture makes it apparent that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that God sought to transcend the Old Testament law through His grace, but you have shrunk away from that if you seek to justify yourself in the eyes of the law. But what do we as New Testament believers do? Well, we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. What does it mean to practice faith in our life on a daily basis? Well, I think it means about five things. First, it means this, standing fast in liberty. Not allowing anything else to become the metric or standard whereby our relationship with God is judged except the person of Jesus Christ, His righteousness, and His finished work on Calvary. The reason He says we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith, He's not saying, well, we're hoping that one day we can can be... Well, I guess he is saying that. Let me say it this way. I can say it a little bit better than that. He's not saying that we're sitting around living unrighteously, hoping one day God is just going to magically make you make us righteous. What he's saying is we understand that in our strength and in our flesh, we are never going to be righteous. One day God will make us righteous when we're given a new body in Christ Jesus. But he's also saying that we are trusting that as we obey the Spirit of God, the righteousness of God will be expressed through us by our faith in Him in depending on him he points to us standing fast in liberty there's a second thing that he points to. i told you we'd go fast look at verse 13 he says for brethren you have been called unto liberty only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh okay well what do we do with it then well he says but by love serve one another for all the law is fulfilled in one word even in this 
Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. How do we practice our faith going day by day in our life? Well, one is by standing fast in liberty, not going to any other system whereby we would think we would uh, accrue God's favor. But number two is by serving in love. One of the things that uh, I won't say was impossible in the Old Testament, but it certainly was not a function of the law, was that love would be the motivator behind man's service, and particularly his service one to another. Again, I'm not saying they didn't love one another in the Old Testament. I'm not saying that was an impossibility. I'm saying the law was not terribly interested in it. <laughs> There's a reason it shocked the the Pharisees and the scribes whenever they asked him, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, well, the greatest commandment is this, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. That wasn't the answer they were expecting. Now, how much of that is a perversion of their understanding of the law and how much of it is just intrinsic in the fact that the law was uh, 600 and some odd commandments and, and, you know, a great many of them did not come with the preface, do this in love. <laughs> and they often didn't. But now we have transcended that. And one of the ways that we fulfill the law of God in a practical sense in our lives is by loving one another. In other words, the law is not our motive, but love is our motive. He gives us another principle here in Verse number 16, he says this, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to another, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Notice what he says. I like this. Against such, there is no law. (laughs) There's no law against those. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit... Let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. What's he driving at here? He's saying this, you don't have to follow the law to keep the law. If you follow the Spirit of God, then you will keep the law in regards to New Testament revealed truth. Now, again, we understand there's three portions to law, that there was there was a religious or ceremonial law, there was moral law, there was a societal law. But what he's saying is essentially that God has not saved you so that you can live with license. But that if you follow the leadership of the Spirit of God, those things that the law was against, and he gives us a list of those things, you'll put those things away. And those things that at its heart the law was for. You remember Christ says the kingdom of heaven is not meat and drink. You know, it's righteousness, it's joy, and it's peace. He's saying those things that God had desired for His people... Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, those things that at the heart of them the law was striving for men to somehow emulate, the Spirit of God does those things. Saying if you follow the leadership of the Spirit of God, well, there's no laws against what the Spirit of God does. He's always keeping uh, the law of God. He's always lawful in the way that he practices and behaves. He gives a final one. I'll just touch on it, mention it in chapter number 6, the first two verses. He says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
What does practicing our faith look like? Well, it looks like standing fast in liberty and serving in love and a spirit-filled life, but it also looks like selfless lifting of other people's burdens. Not saying, how can I make my way and my road easier, but instead looking around and saying, how can I make someone else's load lighter? Let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Father, I love you. Thank you for the word of God and the truth of it. Help us, Lord, to uh, allow this truth to be engrafted into our hearts. Lord, may we endeavor not for faith just to be some passing experience or or or, or uh, priority in our life. Lord, not just to be something that only got us to you, but something, Lord, that after having gotten us to you, that you daily work in our lives to cause us to lean upon you, to depend on you, and to walk in the Spirit of God. Lord, I love you. I thank you for it. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.